listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. We happen to be coming up on a day, Thursday, called Halloween. And Halloween, as you know, is a day where oftentimes wicked spirits and the dark side, so to speak, is given a little bit too much attention. So it just so happens that this particular passage in Luke chapter 8 is a passage that's pertinent and relevant to what's happening this week, and you'll be able to take today's message, think about it this week, apply it to your own life, teach it to your kids, and maybe this Halloween will actually be a little bit different. The passage that we look at today first is in the context of Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. This is God speaking. By myself I have sworn. Nobody can swear or say something on top of that because nobody's higher than God. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Here's a statement said a long time ago by the prophet Isaiah, and then the apostle Paul references that in the book of Romans chapter 14. In verse 11, it says, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, Paul takes it and explains it even more by saying this. Look at the context of the Old Testament reference that I just gave and how Paul used it and referenced it in Romans chapter 14, and then see what he does here in Philippians chapter 2, because it is pertinent to what we're going to talk about today when we get to Luke chapter 8. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is significant, that Paul is helping us understand that to worship Jesus is to worship God. He's helping us understand the identity of Jesus, that at every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word that's used there is the same one that's used for God, to the glory of God the Father. Paul's either blaspheming or he's teaching us a thing or two about the identity of Jesus. You know, the identity of Jesus is very important for you in your walk with God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8 in our Father's Word. Luke chapter 8 in verse 26. You can follow along using the God Factor app on your smartphone or your tablet. If a message is good enough to hear once, it's good enough to hear a thousand times because you'll be able to apply God's word. Look with me. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. This is Jesus and the 12 apostles, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons... For a long time he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. 
He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. I know some of you who like hog maw are real excited when I say that. And for those of you who don't know what hog maw is, we'll leave that for another day. A herd of large pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone, from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You know, in verse 26, it says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. This is Jesus' first foray intentionally into Gentile-occupied territory. He's been teaching and preaching in the synagogue. He's been casting out demons and healing the sick up to this point, primarily among the Jewish people. We know that Jesus' primary place, one of his favorite places for teaching, one of his favorite places for teaching and preaching was the synagogue. And who would be in a synagogue but predominantly Jewish people? That's where the Jewish people would go to worship and to be taught by the rabbis. That's where they would go. And so up to this time, that's where Jesus has been ministering. He's been ministering in Galilee, in the regions there where the people were primarily Jewish people. But now as we'll see in our time next time together, as we go back and we backtrack a little bit, Jesus has the apostles get into a boat to deliberately, with purpose and intentionality, go directly into Gentile territory. And so the question is, how will Jesus be received among the Gentiles? What will the non-Jewish people do with Jesus when Jesus shows up on their turf and begins to do, perhaps, as we're looking at this passage, perhaps Jesus is going to do more of the same things that he did among the Jewish people. Now he's going to do them in Gentile territory. And so the jury would be out if we were in a court of law. We would be waiting for the jury to give their verdict. And here we want to see what the verdict is going to be among the Gentile people. And so Jesus no, long, no sooner gets across the Sea of Galilee, sets his foot on the Gentile turf, and what happens? A man sees him in the distance who is filled with demons. He's unclean. He's ceremonially unclean. We know that this is a Gentile area especially because there are pigs referenced. And Jewish people did not raise the animals with the cloven hooves, the pigs. They were considered an unclean animal. So this is clearly 
Gentile territory. And this man in the distance, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 5 also, this man in the distance sees Jesus and now, bring it on. Bring it on. We're going to see how Jesus handles a man who is filled with more than a handful of demons. Now, unfortunately, even though I love the ESV as an accurate translation of the Bible, it's not accurate here when it uses the word, for example, in verse 36, those who had seen it told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. It's not really the right word. Demon-possessed connotates ownership. And the word that's used there, the Greek word that's used there, connotates a demonically caused activity, demonically charged activity. So you might say, well, what does that mean then? Do I need to go get a different translation? Well, listen, all different types of translations in the English language. Some of them have their strengths. Some of them have their weaknesses. If you wanted to get a real good understanding of what the original language says, you would want to get multiple translations. For example, what do you think people in France are reading today? You think they're reading the ESV? No. You think people in Portugal are reading the ESV? No, they're reading the Portuguese version. How about people in Swaziland? You think they have to learn English first so that then they can get the best translation of the scriptures? Listen, I love the ESV. I might be making you uncomfortable by saying this. If you love the ESV, maybe you worship the ESV. I don't know. But it's an English translation of the original language. If it's going to float your boat any further, Jesus didn't even quote from the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament. He quoted from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. Now, the God of his word, the word became flesh, is bigger and transcends than any language. So let's not get too uptight about a particular translation of the Bible. We have very good translations in the English. And if you want to understand, get the best idea of, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, what the original Hebrew or the Greek said. You get a King James Bible and a New King James Bible and an RSV and an ESV and an NIV. And you get maybe an amplified transliteration. You get all these different translations of the scriptures, maybe a Wiest New Testament, maybe a Phillips New Testament. You get all these different translations and you lay them out on a table. If you're really dedicated as a Bible student, you don't know Greek and Hebrew, and you compare them and you look at them and you'll get a really good understanding of the Greek and the Hebrew. In the meantime, stop having arguments with people about how they need to have a particular translation of the Bible, otherwise they're, they're hell-bound. They're anathema. We came from a place down south where there's a particular translation of the Bible. People think that because they look at the imprimatur on the front of their Bible and it says the authorized version, they actually think that it was the only version that was authorized by God when actually it was the king who authorized a new translation in the language of the people during that day. From whence did you come this morning? I will stop, yes. Don't get hung up on a particular translation. You want to camp out on the Lord. What we want to understand here is that this is a Gentile area. This is Jesus' first deliberate, purposeful venture into an area where there are predominantly non-Jewish people. And we want to see the reception. And what happens here? A person who has demonic problems makes headway to Jesus and confronts Jesus. Actually, it's Jesus confronting 
the man with the demonic issues. After all, it was Jesus' idea to get in the boat and go there in the first place. It was Jesus' idea, having full knowledge of the situation and geography and knowing what was over there. Jesus was the one who was seeking the encounter. Jesus was the one who was purposely going into an area where he knew the kingdom of darkness was strong. And this is a nod. It's a foreshadowing. It's a look ahead to the ministry of Jesus that we see in the book of Acts, which someday, if I'm here long enough, maybe after 20 years, I'll preach through the book of Acts. And we'll see how everything that Jesus began to do, as recorded in the scriptures, continues to happen in the book of Acts. It's not just a book of exceptions, the book of Acts. It's also a book of examples. It's also a book of the expansion of the kingdom of God. And what we're having here is a foreshadowing of the ministry of Jesus, the gospel going forward beyond the Jewish people. It's to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus having a nod, some foreshadowing going in the Gentile area. He's confronted by the man who's got unclean spirits attacking him. And we get some insight here. And the first thing we want to recognize is that this man demonstrates the characteristics, the trademarks, the hallmarks of demonic oppression demonic influence, demonic control. See, when somebody is influenced by wicked spirits, whether it's one or whether it's legion, when somebody is influenced by wicked spirits, there are characteristic trademarks. Not all of them need to be present for there to be demonic activity because demons, one of the geniuses behind demonic activity is to remain undetected. And what Jesus is doing is picking up a rock to expose all the squirmy, crawling things that nest underneath. He's deliberately going there to do what? To expand his kingdom, to demonstrate his identity, to demonstrate his power, which should point people to his identity. Some of the characteristics of this man. Look in verse 27. For a long time, we know that this is not just a instantaneous situation, this man has been held captive. He had worn no clothes. In other words, he was a bit of a social outcast, not the life of the party. He had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. This man is in isolation. He lacks, has lost his dignity. One of the things that demonic forces do is they isolate. If you ever feel isolated, you have to remember that it's not God's intention for you to feel isolated. The enemy wreaks havoc in marital relationships, in church situations, in all types of relationships where his strategy is to divide and conquer. He knows that if he can get you alone, thinking that you can fight your battle all by yourself without other godly people helping you, without rubbing shoulders with them, he knows that if he can isolate, if he can divide, then he can conquer. So the next time you're feeling isolated, you remember that you're created in the image of God, a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They have relationship with each other. And therefore, since you are created in the image of God, you are created for relationship, first and foremost with God, and then also with other people. This is the idea of the institution of marriage. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. The idea of relationship and friendship, companionship, 
the opposite of isolation. This man is demonstrating the influences of demonic activity. He's isolated. He's lacking his dignity. In Mark chapter 5, we see that the man is described as cutting himself. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5 for a second because Mark does something that a Roman audience would be interested in. See, the Romans, if they were going to watch a movie, they would watch Braveheart. They like the blood and the guts. And Mark is writing his gospel to a fast-paced audience, Romans who wanted blood, they wanted guts, they wanted gore, it would keep their attention. I know that they had the attention of all the men, especially at this particular time. And Mark provides some detail. Chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This is the area we're talking about. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. The interesting thing is, you know, since I'm reading the ESV, that it says no one had the strength to subdue him. But if you were reading the original Greek language, you would see that what actually comes out there, the word that's used for no one is actually no one. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The man is performing a self-destructive behavior. Self-mutilation is an evidence of demonic activity, demonic forces. It is not God's will to deface your body. Now, let me say something here, whether it's cutting, and I'm going I'm to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say even in the area of imprinting images on your body, you've got to be a little bit careful here. Because you can cross the line to the point of where it becomes self-defacing and self-mutilating, which then there is a gray area as to, I'll leave it up to the Holy Spirit inside of you who know Christ. I'll leave it up to the Holy Spirit. You are to become more and more like Christ, not less and less like him as you mature in your walk with him. So before you get something imprinted on your body, whether it's temporary or permanent, ask yourself whether or not this crosses the line into defacing your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, mutilating your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, or whether or not it actually glorifies the Lord. Well, Mike, why don't you just come right out and say what you believe? I'm not the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus as your Savior and your desire is to grow in Christ-likeness, your walk with the Lord means that you're walking with him in such a way that you're continually communing with him, continually growing by reading his word, continually surrendering to him, and I believe that the Holy Spirit will give you insight into a multitude, every single area of your life. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. You don't need me to be a legalist about it, do you? So I won't be. But what I do want you to understand is this idea of self-mutilation being something that is demonic, not the characteristic, not the mark of a disciple. Notice that he has spiritual insight. Verse 28, 
What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Hey, how do you know that he's son of the most high God? Who told you that? See, evil spirits often have insight, clairvoyant abilities. Just because you go to a fortune teller and the fortune teller tells you a thing or two about your future doesn't mean that God gave the fortune teller the insight. Doesn't mean that you want the insight just because it's supernatural in nature. One of the things that wicked spirits often do is reveal enough of the truth so that you're willing to take the bait of the lie. Remember, what looks good to the fish that leads him to open his mouth and swallow wide, what leads him to that underneath the bait is a hook, and the enemy operates the same way. So this ability to have clairvoyant knowledge and insight, spiritual insight, is often demonic. It's not of the Lord. It's contrary and counter to the Lord. Notice the supernatural strength. Notice the supernatural strength. This guy is bound with more chains. They just eventually gave up on him. If you read Mark's gospel, the guy's jumping around, running around in the tombs day and night, calling out, screaming, cutting himself, except when he would dress nicely and have a dinner party in the tombs. Then he'd get his act together. You know, this guy is uncontrollable. He has supernatural strength, power that no mere mortal can bind this guy up. Nobody can control this guy. And the trail of devastation behind them is telltale for somebody who is oppressed, influenced, harassed, under the control of demonic forces. It's chaos. Absolute chaos. The stronger the stronghold, the more significant the demonic activity, the greater the train wrecks behind. The greater the chaos, the more difficulty and hardship. Because all of this shows us that the enemy, demons, wicked spirits, the devil, they are opposed to the plan, the purpose of God, the person of God. That's what they do. They oppose the plan the purpose, and the person of God. That's what wicked spirits do. And this is why it's so significant. This idea of rebellion against spiritual things is an important thing to take into consideration. It is very important how you interact with other people. It shows me, but more importantly, it shows God. It shows other people whether or not you're mature in your walk with Christ. We are to take rebellion when godly leaders in a church are trying to move a church in a certain direction, the direction of God, and people resist that, it's something to take note of because godly leaders are trying to lead the church in following Jesus. And when people oppose the direction that godly leaders are leading that church into, you're acting like wicked spirits who are opposing the plan the purpose and the person of God. Notice I qualified. I did say godly leaders. Doesn't mean that there's spiritual license then for somebody who is ungodly to lead people in a wrong direction and justify it by saying, well, I've got a position and I've got a title. No, there's plenty of spiritual abuse out there. But let's not be so quick to jump to calling something spiritual abuse. Well, maybe it's a submission the plan, the program, the person of God. The scriptures say, obey your leaders so that it will go well with them and their labors in the Lord will not be difficult, a burden, but a blessing. 
And so when you act, when I act in a way that is contrary to the direction of the Holy Spirit, you're acting like an insane looney tune, cutting himself, jumping around in the hills, unclean because of the evil spirits, unclean because you're hanging out among dead bones. That would make a person unclean to touch a dead body. This guy's hanging out in the tombs. There's nothing clean about this guy. And when you act in rebellion, you're acting as if you were demonized, as if, if you were influenced by demons. And some people actually are. Some people actually are, in the 21st century, influenced by wicked spirits, by demons. I know. I've encountered them on multiple occasions. And I'm going to be vulnerable enough today to open my journal and turn to August 16th, 2012. You might have heard me share some of the stories of my father. My father accepted Christ eventually on his deathbed. My father accepted Christ. But before he did, on August 16th, 9.30 in the evening, I wrote, at 8.45 this evening, Dad allowed me to pray and to lead him in prayers of renunciation. It was the most amazing part of this journey with him yet. Here's how it happened. The doctors had just left after explaining that he probably has pancreatitis and he needs to have a catheter inserted. When the doctor left dad, he turned to me and said, Michael, I don't want to live anymore. Everything is broken. He then went on to explain how almost every part of his body was breaking down. He said, Michael, I'm sorry, but I don't want to live anymore. Tears were welling up in his eyes. And I held his hand as he lay there. We are in room 310 here at University Hospital and Medical Center in Tamarack, Florida. I told him that I could empathize and stroked his hair and his face and his arms. It was then that he said, Michael, you are my savior. Twice he repeated this, and it made me a bit uncomfortable. Wouldn't that make you uncomfortable? So I said, I'm not your savior, Dad. Jesus is your savior. Dad said, I know, but you're here for me. I've been here with Dad since 11 o'clock this morning, leaving the room only to go to the cafeteria or the restroom. The grace of God is so responsible for the transformation of my life that I can't take the credit in the least. All of what is happening is the grace, the undeserved favor of God, not me. Dad, I began, why don't you give your life to Christ? I can't, he said. Something is blocking me. Something is blocking me. What is it, Dad, I asked. I don't know. I just can't, he said. Dad, I'd like to lead you in a prayer of renunciation if you'd let me, and I'd like you to pray along with me. Would that be okay? Yes, he replied. I then, had Dad, I then led Dad in the following prayer as he and I held hands while he laid on, in his bed on his back with his eyes closed. His body, now 22 pounds lighter than just two weeks earlier, was frail and weak. Lord Jesus Christ, Dad repeated, Lord Jesus Christ, I come before you and ask for your help. I ask you to remove whatever is blocking me, preventing me from seeing the truth about the gospel. Dad followed me in prayer without missing a beat. He was attentive and engaged. Lord, I continued, I ask that you would remove the blinding from my eyes and the hardness of my heart. And Dad repeated. Then I stopped and I warned Dad. 
Dad, I'm going to have you renounce the devil now, okay? I'm going to pray against the devil, okay? Without hesitation and with a sigh of excited relief that was most remarkable, Dad said, I was waiting for you to do that. I prayed, Lord, I come against things in my life that are footholds, Dad repeated, and I renounce the works of the devil in my life and in my ancestry, and I ask you to break them in the name of Jesus Christ. And I ask that you would remove the blindness from my eyes and the hardness of my heart that's keeping me from accepting you as my Savior and my Lord. Help me to receive you as my Master and my Savior. Dad followed excellently. I realized that the walls of bondage were beginning to rupture. To have Dad actually praying this kind of prayer, let alone any kind of prayer, was significant and even monumental. A number of days later, at the same time on a Sunday night, my father gave his life to Jesus Christ as his Savior. He couldn't do it because he was in bondage. His eyes were blind. His heart was hardened. And he needed to specifically renounce the works of the devil that were keeping him in bondage, making him do things he otherwise would not do, making him say things he otherwise would not say, keeping him from a God that he otherwise would know. Don't you realize that all the works of the enemy are shrouded in the false promise of making you happy, giving you something that you think you want, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. The enemy is a master at deceit. And when we, we give in to the deceit and we believe there's happiness apart from intimacy and submission and surrender to God, and we take the bait, it always, always results in bondage and chaos. This man left train wreck after train wreck in his life. My father had train wreck after train wreck in his life, relational train wreck after relational train wreck. If my dad were here, you say, is that dishonoring your father? He's not here to defend himself. No, if my father was here, he'd say, preach it, Mike. My dad is more alive now than he ever was for his 79 years. He'd say, tell him, Mike. Tell him you don't have to go another moment living in deceit and bondage to the devil. You can be set free through the power that's found in Jesus Christ. All you have to do is submit and surrender yourself to Jesus. Ask him to set you free. And you know, for whatever it's worth, you might be in somebody's life right now. It might not be you, but you might know somebody who's in bondage. You might be next to somebody who's really adept at driving trains into ditches, really adept at creating train wrecks. And maybe you're the person that God has put into their life to lead them to the feet of Jesus. Don't give up on the people that God has put in your life. Intercede for them. Pray for them. Get on a plane and go see them. Show them the love of Jesus. Whatever it takes, their eternal destiny is at stake. I don't know how God works all of that out. You don't need to know how God works all of that out. All you need to do is be the hands and feet of Jesus. Take personal responsibility for the welfare of other people. Leave the rest up to God. Stand in the gap. Fight the fight. There's a battle going on, and it's a battle for people's eternal destinies.
And instead of just saying that person's a looney tune, they probably are. Instead of just saying, I can't handle that person, you probably can't. I can guarantee you probably haven't come across somebody who's got this many chains on them who continually, perpetually, as a matter of supernatural strength, breaks out of them. I can pretty much guarantee you've never come across somebody who's jumping around completely naked and cutting themselves with stones, screaming and shouting like this. And yet, if Jesus could take care of this person and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, no weapon formed against you will prosper. What are you waiting for? See, we've been dumbed down as a culture. Men, we've been dumbed down. Relegated, you just sit around a fire pit and eat red meat. That's what many men's ministries do. You sit around a fire pit and eat red meat. Really? I'm created in the image of God, charged by God to go into the world and subdue it, and all you want me to do is sit around a fire pit and eat red meat? The devil doesn't quake and shake over that, but you understand your position in Christ. You understand the identity of Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? You begin to understand who Jesus Christ is and that greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. You begin to understand that stuff and you become a mover and a shaker for the kingdom of God. You begin to rise up whether you're a man or whether you're a woman. Doesn't matter. This is not just that relegated to men. No matter who you are, you begin to rise up and you begin to invite Jesus into your marriage. You begin to invite Jesus into your relationships. You begin to invite Jesus to go into dark territory and confront what otherwise you cannot confront in your humanness. No joke. You can't confront wicked spirits in your own power, but in Christ you can do all things who gives you strength. You know, if you read this scripture casually, you might come to the conclusion that it's troubling that Jesus is having a dialogue with wicked spirits. Why is Jesus having a dialogue? The all-powerful, all-knowing Jesus comes across this man who's filled with a boatload full of demons, a boatload full of them. They weren't in the boat when Jesus got there, but he gets there and there's a boatload full of demons. Why does Jesus even allow them to talk? He knows what he's going into. Why is, why is Jesus having a dialogue? No, if you read it casually, you'll get hung up on that and you'll think it's about a dialogue. It's not about a dialogue. It's about a demonstration. This man gave the people around him a handful and more. Nobody could control this man. This man did whatever the demons wanted him to do against his own will, against his own fruition, against his own thinking. Another characteristic of demonic activity, having a change in personality. This man had a change in his personality. Nobody could control this man. It was clear that the demons were controlling this man. People had given up on him. He had the reputation. Jesus comes. And he listens to Jesus. This is why the people are afraid. Because we always fear what we don't understand. This happens even in Christian circles when God moves. God moves significantly. And it's outside of our box. It's outside of our theological paradigm. And we get concerned. We get uncomfortable. We get fearful. Listen, if it's orderly, 
if it draws attention to Jesus Christ, if it's based upon his word and it causes people to repent and come to Jesus, it seems to me like that's a pretty good thing. Now, there are some wacky, bizarre, stupid, occult, counterfeit things that happen, but I am not going to let the occult, wacky, bizarre things keep me. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not going to let the extremes and the bizarreties and the blasphemous things that certainly happen keep me from trusting that my God can defeat a boatload full of demons. And if he can defeat a boatload full of demons, put them in their place simply by speaking, then he can handle anything in my life. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Can you imagine... When Jesus speaks and this man listens, the demons inside of him listen. See, it says in verse 32, a large herd of pigs were there on the hillside. They begged him to let them, en- let them enter these, so he gave them permission. We would say, why is Jesus kowtowing to the demons? Why? No, the demons are kowtowing to Jesus. You don't understand the passage. You haven't really marinated on the passage. We got a pot full at home. I can't wait till lunchtime. We've got a crock pot full of sausage and peppers on our kitchen counter with tomato sauce and onions and garlic, delicious sausage and fresh red and green peppers that it's going to be ready when we get home. I can smell it. I can almost taste it. I know it's going to be good because it's been marinating. When you marinate yourself in the Word of God, when you meditate on the Word of God, the things that at first you think the Scriptures are saying become much clearer. This is not Jesus conceding to the demons. It's the demons conceding to Jesus. Well, well, why the pigs? The pigs don't present a problem. The pigs are not a problem at all. In fact, the pigs are quite the opposite. The pigs are quite the opposite. The pigs serve a purpose. Mark shows us that there was a herd of 2,000 pigs. And by Jesus sending these pigs, or the demons into these pigs, the people get a visual understanding of how deeply in bondage this man was. That this man who was influenced by 2,000 or so pigs, a legion, listen, the word legion is used to describe Roman soldiers. That's between five, 6,000 people. And when Jesus sends these demons into those pigs and gives them permission, what do you think would have happened to these Gentile people who were fearful of this man? They recognized that that guy had that many demons in him, and they go down the hill and over the cliff and into the abyss, which is basically showing us that they ended up in the abyss anyway. Foreshadowing to Revelation chapter 20. 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 2, where it talks about God sending evil spirits into gloomy dungeons to await their final and ultimate eternal torture. The pigs are not a problem. They serve a purpose. Because now the people are able to see with their own eyes how deeply troubled this man was. They knew that he had demonic issues probably. They knew that the man couldn't be set free by anybody. They knew that the man was in bondage and had train wreck after train wreck that he caused. But now they get a glimpse as to the depths 
of this man's difficulties. See, pigs are not moral beings. They're not told in the scriptures to obey the Old Testament law. Pigs and other animals aren't responsible for sin coming into the world. Adam was. We are created in the image of God because we are moral beings. We have the ability to choose, the ability to make right choices, the ability to make wrong choices that we will be held morally responsible for before God. So it's not a problem. See, animal rights activists will look at this. They have a hard time with this, that Jesus was anti-animal. You know, Jesus is pro-kingdom of God. And so whatever he needs to use, whatever he needs to do to demonstrate his power and his identity and his purpose, he will use so that it would result in what happens in this particular passage, which is this man comes to Jesus. He's the first missionary in the land of the Gentiles. Look. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. See, he realizes that Jesus set him free. And when you realize that Jesus has set you free, you want to go with Jesus, don't you? See, the problem is we forget what Jesus has set us free from. That's why we stray from Jesus. He realizes that Jesus has set him free and he begs him, to go with Jesus, but Jesus sent him away. It seems maybe cruel at first. See, Jesus has the 12 disciples. I mean, this would have been a great time to exchange Judas for this guy. But Jesus commissions him. Return to your home. See, the man did have a home. He did have a home. The man did have a home temporarily for a long time. He was in the tombs. Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city. What city? The Gentile city. Proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And so, the way had been prepared for when the gospel falls in the book of Acts and goes to Samaria and the ends of the earth, this man had boots on the ground already. This man was sent by Jesus to make straight the way for the Lord as the first missionary among the Gentile people. And God's plan and his purpose goes forward. What is it that Jesus has done for you that you can be grateful for that you can tell other people? What has Jesus done for you that you can be grateful for, that you can be happy for, that you can tell other people? This guy had a story to tell. And if you know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you've got a story too. And in the same way that Jesus sent this man into a dark land where the people needed to hear the good news, the gospel, so Jesus sends you. What are you afraid of? You don't need to be afraid of anyone or anything. There's not enough demons for you to be afraid of or concerned about. There's no obstacle you're facing in your life that Jesus isn't aware of and bigger than. Fear nobody except God. 
Stop letting yourself be contained and chained and shackled and limited. Allow God to lift you up and send you out to do what he called you to do, which is to be a witness for him, to tell other people the story of how you were lost and now you're found. You were bound and now you're free. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. He's the son of the most high God. And he invaded our space at a particular time so that you could receive him as your Lord and Savior and do what? Not just be personally forgiven of your sins, but be empowered to help other people be free from their sins as well. To go out into a dark world, whether it's this week, it's every week to go out into the world. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.